Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 200 Anne and Thomas. Now then, you might like to know that this Thursday, 22nd of March, I am doing an AMA online at 9.30 in the morning, US Eastern Time. That is 1.30pm UK time. Come and join me. A what? An AMA or Ask Me Anything. It's where you go online and I sit there answering questions that you've typed in online. And it's organised by a group called WhatPod. If you would like to come and ask me a question, you can find details on how to do so on my website, thehistoryofengland.co.uk, and you can even ask me questions in advance. I'm not quite sure, to be honest, why you'd want to do this. But if you do, you would be most and warmly welcome. Before I start, let me briefly remind you that I am a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network, a smorgasbord of independent podcasters. To find out more, go to agorapodcastnetwork.com and the podcast of the month, American Biography. Last week, after a rather obsessive description of Henry's bodily functions, we concluded the marriage agreement between Henry and his new wife-to-be, Anne of Cleves. Much rode on Anne for many people. For Anne, her life, happiness and dignity in a new country. For Henry, the future of his dynasty, and indeed his happiness too. Since the death of Queen Jane Seymour, the court was lacking with the women that accompanied the Queen's household, and Henry felt that life at court was unusually dull. For Cromwell, the marriage to Anne and alliance with Cleves was the cement that would secure his influence and position, a position which had been accompanied by an element of wobble recently, and no one likes things that wobble, apart from the weebles, maybe. But both he and his supporter in Henry's Privy Chamber, Anthony Denny, the success of the match with Anne was critical. It took quite a while for Anne to get over to England. Rather remarkably, none of her family came with her, which seems a little mean. And of course, she did have companions from Cleves with her. She rarely travelled more than five miles a day as she journeyed through the Low Countries, and she excited quite a lot of interest as she went. In Antwerp, the good burghers gathered and clapped and cheered, 
At Calais, when she finally arrived, the ship that would take her to England and marital bliss was bedecked with streamers. Seamen cheered from the tops and guns were fired in salute. Admiral Fitzwilliam was suitably impressed with Anne and sent enthusiastic reports home. Henry was clearly looking forward to meeting her and was reported to as being merry at court. What could possibly go wrong? The weather was a bit rubbish for her crossing for the Channel, and after all, it was December, but she arrived in England safely to be greeted by the Duke and Duchess of Suffolk. She herself was eager to meet her dashing groom, so insisted that they set off the following day, and so to Canterbury, where Cranmer made a pretty little speech, and thence to Rochester, jolly near London. The idea was that she'd spend the New Year holiday there, and then on the 3rd of January she'd go up to London and meet hubby-to-be and have fun, always assuming Henry wasn't having that thing done we heard about last week with a stick of pig's bladder and a royal bottom. Romantic. Exciting. Isn't it not? So there we are. It's New Year's Day at the Bishop's Palace in Rochester. The locals have decided to amuse Anne with a spot of bull-baiting, which she was watching out of the window. And before you say, oh, let me tell you, if you are not already aware, Tudor sports are, well, a little brutal. Cockfighting, bear-baiting and football, well, football, contact sport or what? We'll do an episode before too long. So, there she is, Anne and her ladies, when suddenly into her room burst six gentlemen, all of them very cleverly disguised in identical multicoloured cloaks and hoods. One of them looking very grand, big tall bloke, clearly also been on the pies recently, but you know, impressive, though with what looked suspiciously like a pig's bladder sticking out of his bottom. Alarmingly, it was the pie-eating pig's bladder man who came forward, kissed her and gave her a gift from the king. Well, Anne didn't know where to put herself. Who was he? What was he doing here? Why was there a pig's bladder sticking out of his bottom? She had no idea it was Henry, for Henry twas, of course. So, once she said, uh, thanks, she turned away and kept watching the bull-baiting, on the basis that if we ignore a problem long enough, it'll eventually go away. Deprived of attention and the expected adulation, Henry quietly deflated behind her like, well, like a pig's bladder. Nonplussed, he and his pals withdrew and then returned with all their clever, devilishly delightful disguises discarded and the king in all his glory revealed and announced as such. Oh dear, a unique agony in a nation that defined the word socially awkward. Poor Anne must have been thinking, Oh, good lord, what have I done? Oh, I really messed it up. So embarrassing. Poor Henry must have been thinking, Oh, good lord, what have I done? I looked a complete and utter arse. One of the men present said that Henry then behaved lovingly and attentively before heading off back home. The other said he said barely 20 words for legging it for the safety of his barge. It's difficult to blame either party, isn't it? Though I'm sure we'd love to throw more rotten eggs at Henry. His previous wives would have quite understood what was going on here. We've had an example of these chivalric courtly goings-on before, haven't we? His head had been filled with praise of Anne's accomplishments. He'd have expected Anne that she'd know what was going on and had been trained to deal with this and other such events. Anne, meanwhile, poor lamb, didn't speak a word of English and her upbringing had been very orthodox and restrained, nothing there about courtly love and chivalry. We've already heard that of the accomplishments absolutely expected at the English court, singing, dancing, playing music, Anne had been trained in none. It was just like a whale and a lion meeting. No comprehension, no meeting point. A complete mismatch. I like her not, Henry is supposed to have roared as he thrashed in emotional agony on his barge. 
And certainly his journey hope did not go well. He sat there sighing like a teenager, asking his mates what they thought. We don't know what was going through Anne's head. Did she realise? Was she horrified at the rather bloated 48-year-old she'd just met? Or did the luminescence of cloth of gold dazzle her still? When Henry arrived home, Cromwell was eagerly waiting. How, how you liked that Lady Anne? Nothing so well as she was spoken of. If I had known as much before as I know now, she should not have come into this realm. What remedy? I know none. I am very sorry, therefore. Oh, dear. The two then formally and officially met at Blackheath, with lines of courtiers gleaming gold, formalities to cover up the smell of disappointment, and Anne was conducted to her apartments. Once again, an anxious Cromwell feeling the noose tightening around his neck, found Henry in his privy chamber. He went into bat for Anne, and of course, for his own future. My lord, is it not as I told you? Say what they will, she is nothing as fair as she has been reported. Howbeit, she is well and seemly. By my faith, sir, ye say truth. I thought she had a queenly manner. Maybe, just maybe, all was not lost. Sadly, it was. The wedding next day was postponed. Henry summoned his council to see if a way out could be found. This could not have been a happy meeting for Cromwell. The sound of stifled giggles from Norfolk and muffled guffaws of hilarity from Gardiner would have been irritating. The Cleves ambassadors were summoned and asked about the previous negotiations for Anne to marry the son of the Duke of Lorraine, but there was no escape there. They promised that no contract had been made. In the king's personal journey back to his privy chamber, King chewed out minister. I am not well handled. If it were not for fear of making a ruffle in the world, that is to mean drive her brother into the hands of the emperor, I would never have married her. The following day, still snarling, King addressed minister again. Is there none other remedy but I must needs against my will put my neck in the yoke. He received no answer. Cromwell had already legged it. The marriage went ahead, and magnificently dressed in cloth of gold, lovingly carried all the way from Cleves against this best of days, when she would become the glory of her house and family, Anne of Cleves, Queen of England. In the evening, the pair were escorted to the bedroom as normal, and both put to bed. The headpiece of the very bed itself still survives. It sports suggestive and hopeful carvings of a man with a bulging codpiece and a woman with a bulging stomach. Noodle point in the subtlety department. What happened afterwards over the next few days, while they actually did share a bed together, was not designed to trouble the royal nursery. Anne had no idea what to do. Henry had no desire or capability to dispel her ignorance. Henry complained bitterly later that she had the most unpleasant odour about her even tried to claim he'd found evidence she was not a virgin, which even for Henry was a little desperate. Meanwhile, a few months later, Anne had learned enough English to talk to the ladies of her household. Anne told them she was not yet pregnant. One of them asked, How is it possible for your grace to know that and lie every night with the king? Which is a naughty, leading question, really. At which point Jane Rochford, widow of executed George Boleyn, remember her, re-enters our story. She said, by our lady, I think your grace is maid still indeed. How can I be a maid and sleep every night with the king? There must be more than that. 
Why, when he comes to bed, he kisses me and takes me by the hand and biddeth me good night, sweetheart. In the morning, he kisses me farewell, darling. Is it not enough? That is not German. At which point, the Countess of Rutland got involved. Madam, there must be more than this, or it will be long ere we have a Duke of York. Actually, it's likely that the Countess of Rutland in particular already knew there was a problem and had wimped out from broaching the conversation before. Poor Anne seems to have been much more aware that there was a problem than this last anecdote would suggest. From as early as the 7th of January, she'd asked for a chat with Cromwell. For a man so brave, for good or ill, in challenging the established might of the medieval church for risking death in the swirl of murderous factional politics, he turned out to be a complete and utter chicken when it came to marital advice. In a blue funk, Cromwell told the Earl of Rutland to have a word with Anne about how to get Henry interested. And it looked as though bravely Rutland ducked, though he surely must have tried to shuffle the responsibility off to his wife. And if so, she ducked as well. Sadly, when this conversation finally came up and the Countess of Rutland tried to say something, she fell against the stone walls of Anne's sense of propriety. She refused to talk about such a personal thing. Fie, 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 for shame! She exclaimed, and that was that. David Hume, the great 18th century Scottish historian and philosopher, recorded a conversation between Henry and his nearest and dearest, the Duke of Norfolk and Edward Seymour. I'm determined to get rid of Anne of Cleves, and Cromwell shall not deceive me again, he is supposed to have said to Norfolk. This is just what Norfolk wanted to hear, of course, and he turned to Edward Seymour, the Duke of Somerset. Duke, this is time to get rid of the common people from our midst. You see that the king has quarrelled with Cromwell and asks our counsel. We will advise him to take affairs into his own hands, not to be ruled so much by Cromwell. This is probably David Hume speaking rather than the people concerned, but it seems true enough of the situation. Cromwell's political safety continued to travel between the Scylla of Bishop Stephen Gardner and his support for traditional religious practice and the Charybdis of the Duke of Norfolk and his hatred of the Oiks and indeed of evangelicals as well. The disaster of Anne and Henry's personal mismatch cannot have done anything to help Cromwell's position. And in the words of the Bible, there was much wobbling. But to make matters worse, the diplomatic situation moved against him as well. It never rains but. Francis and Charles V fell out. England was no longer isolated. This both gave Norfolk a dose of prestige, since it was he who was able to bring the news from Paris where he'd been speaking with Francis, who now also had encouraging overtures to make. And it made the diplomatic need for the Cleves alliance much less pressing. In fact, not, well, what's the word now? Oh yes, irrelevant. And there was much wobbling, and in the Cromwell closet, a wailing and a gnashing of teeth. Meanwhile, in early 1540, both Stephen Gardiner and Norfolk went for the throat. Gardiner cleverly sought to undermine Cromwell by playing on Henry's worries about the speed of religious reform and his hatred of the dispute and debate about religion in his kingdom. His opportunity came through Cromwell's protégé, the Lutheran Robert Barnes, who made the mistake of taking on Gardiner at debate. Gardiner was good at debate and he trounced Barnes. And he then had Barnes and two of his friends, Garrett and Jerome, hauled in front of the king and forced them to make wildly enthusiastic recantations. But Gardner wanted more. To bring down Cromwell, he needed blood. And he worked up the case against them by his privy complaining to the king and his secret whisperings in his friend's ears. As a result, the three were imprisoned and set to be executed. Now this struck at Cromwell in two ways. 
it was seen that he could not protect evangelicals, a public sign of the fall of his stock with the king. Secondly, it associated Cromwell himself with supposed heretics. Now this was to be the principal weapon by which Norfolk, Gardiner and the traditionalists attacked Cromwell, by painting him as a heretic, as a sacramentalist and even an Anabaptist. The word sacramentalist is a confusing one, or at least I found it to be so. Actually, it means that the person was doubting the sacraments rather than carrying them out. Neither Henry nor Luther attacked that core sacrament of the Mass, although Luther moved to consubstantiation rather than transubstantiation. Sacramentalists were supposed to have rejected it entirely. Now, it's clear that whatever his religious beliefs and support for evangelicals, Cromwell would in the end go along with what his king demanded him to believe and do. But truth wasn't at issue here. What was at issue was what the king could be brought to believe about Cromwell. Interestingly, all three, including Barnes, would indeed burn, and no one was ever clear why. Barnes himself demanded to know, why am I being burnt? at his very execution in July 1540, which, you know, isn't an unreasonable question. Not even the sheriff could tell him. But they said, ah, what the heck, let's burn him anyway. And so they did. Norfolk, meanwhile, supported the whispering campaign against Cromwell, but he then benefited from another twist of fate, Catherine Howard. When the marriage to Anne of Cleves had been agreed on, she obviously needed a household to look after her. This was the patronaged opportunity of the decade, There were 126 women to be appointed to be part of her household and the waters at court boiled with the feeding frenzy of aristocrats desperately trying to get their noses into the trough to suck up the swill. The Howard family was obviously one of the winners and a young woman called Catherine Howard, of whom we'll hear more next time, was one of the lucky ones. At some point, Catherine caught Henry's eye. She was young, attractive, lively and fun-loving in exactly the way that Anne was not. Now, It used to be thought that the Howard family was complicit in this, that Norfolk sort of trailed Catherine across the king's path. Mmm, king. But there is considerable doubt about that now. Catherine had a chequered sexual history. Catherine's aunt, the Countess of Bridgewater, must have known very well about that past. And if the Duke and his mum, the Dowager Duchess, had also therefore known, they would have been mad to push Catherine forward because such a sexual history would be an immediate red card for any royal marriage, and if hidden, an easy excuse for execution and death. So, it seems that it may well have been the king's eye alone that led to Catherine. But he began to make trips over the river to Lambeth, where the Dowager Duchess and Stephen Gardiner provided feasts and entertainments, and to that degree they are indeed complicit, though it's not clear what they could have done once the king had started his dribbling. Cromwell, meanwhile, tried to fight back, One of his routes was really nothing more than a clumsy way of irritating Norfolk still further by insisting on the dissolution of Thetford Priory wherein lay the Howard ancestors, forcing Norfolk to move their tombs. This wasn't the kind of heroic activity Norfolk wanted to carry out. Desperately, Cromwell tried to reconcile himself with Gardiner, having a heart-to-heart with him where they agreed to bury their differences. One of them was lying, probably both. Cromwell resigned his secretaryship to the king in favour of his protégé Ralph Sadler. People have wondered why give up such an important post at such a time, but this looks like a cunning way of getting more of his protégés close to the king to influence his mind. At the start of April 1540, the French ambassador declared that Cromwell was wobbling and that one of Gardiner or Cromwell would have to go. 
His money was on a Cromwellian victory, and unsurprisingly, Cromwell was the master of disguise of politics. Gardner already had form for putting his foot in it. And in April, it seemed as though his view was vindicated because on the 18th of April, 1540, Henry granted Cromwell the Earldom of Essex and the senior court office of Great Lord Chamberlain. This was amazing stuff for the lad from Putney. These are the kind of exclusive positions open only to the aristocracy. He was there. He had made it. In May, Cromwell celebrated by having some of his traditional opponents in Calais arrested, principally the governor, Lord Leal, who'd been exposing and arresting evangelicals. Cromwell was back. Meanwhile, Henry's interest in Catherine continued, granting her money and land. Poor Anne herself could not help but notice and complained about it to the Duke of Cleves' ambassador in London. In his report home, the ambassador claimed this had been going on for months. Henry was now determined to be rid of Anne, but Cromwell was in a jam. He wanted to carry out his king's orders. He knew how important it was to his own future, but if he did, then his great enemy, the Duke of Norfolk, would have a member of his family as the Queen. What was he to do? Rumour and innuendo continued to grow. To the rumours of unhealthy religious beliefs were added accusations that Cromwell had a massive household and that 1,500 people throughout the country wore his badge. The implication being, well, what does he need with all those folks? Unless he was planning rebellion. But probably more damaging was the accusation that the Duke of Cleves had achieved this marriage by bribing Cromwell. That was damaging not so much in itself... Cleves would have been expected to send gifts to Cromwell. Cromwell would have been expected to receive them. It was more the suggestion that Cromwell would not be trying very hard to get his master's yet out of the yoke he disliked so much. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. By the beginning of June, tensions were running so high that the French ambassador, Mariac, reported... Things are brought to such a pass that either Cromwell's party or that of the Bishop of Winchester must succumb. Cromwell kept on working. At the Parliament of 1540, he polished off any remaining monasteries. He confirmed the establishment of the Court of Wards. As June got underway, there seemed to be no indication that Thomas Cromwell, Earl of Essex, was in any immediate danger. On the 10th of June, Cromwell took his place in the Lords as normal. Later in the afternoon, he then proceeded to a council meeting as normal. What with the press of business and, you know, he was a little bit tubby and not the most elegant walker, he was a bit late. So, council was assembled when he walked to his place at the head of the council table, as was his right as Lord Privy Seal. He bent his knees, held his bottom lightly but firmly over the seat, preparatory to placing his buttocks in the place of power. Cromwell, do not sit there. That is no place for you. Traitors do not sit among gentlemen. I am no traitor. While Cromwell looked on in astonishment at the council, he'd ruled and bullied and controlled for so long, the captain of the guard appeared behind him. I arrest you. What for? That you will learn elsewhere. Cromwell snatched the cap off his head and threw it on the floor in exasperation. This, then, is the reward for all my services. 
I rather like this response. Not fear, not terror, not disbelief, not rage. Irritation. However, now at last Cromwell's spell was broken and the little people of the council, the Norfolks and the Suffolks, who'd felt robbed of their birthright to rule whatever their quality, could finally give vent to their frustration and released fear and hatred. They screamed abuse. They thumped their fists on the table as they screamed. Norfolk got up, strode forward and ripped the insignia of the Knight of the Garter from Cromwell's throat, the sign of the ancient superiority of nobility which had poked him in the armour proper every time he looked at it. Sad to say, Cromwell's friends on council made that quick calculation on which political careers depend and started yelling and table-thumping too. Admiral Fitzwilliam went one step further, ripping the garter itself from Cromwell's knee. And, like so many of his own victims, Cromwell was carted off to the tower, there to be greeted by the constable William Kingston. Cromwell's fall was announced by Chancellor Audley to the Parliament. Jaws hit knees, silence was stunned, shock and awe spread like a concussion blast from the Chancellor's words. And among them was, of course, his son, Gregory, who must have wondered whether the seamorness of his wife was going to be enough to save him. Cromwell was accused of a litany of crimes, including bribery and corruption, but it was the heretical charges that took centre place. Among many, the accusations that he'd agreed with the German princes that he'd kill Henry if he tried to reverse the process of reform, an accusation almost as silly as the idea that Anne Boleyn had slept with her own brother. A bill of attainder was whipped through Parliament, and the Earl of Essex and Lord Cromwell was back to plain old Tom, ashes to ashes, poor Tom's a cold though his son Gregory would keep his own possessions and survive the fall of his father, everything that Cromwell owned was seized. The ambassador Marillac was as relieved as any English noble that the upstart was gone, because he knew his master Francis I also hated having to deal with a commoner. They have reduced such a personage to the state from which they erased him and treated him as hitherto. Everyone said he deserved Francis was indeed duly delighted and clearly he'd gone so far in the past as to gossip with the Duke of Norfolk about how awful it was to have to deal with a commoner when he wrote Norfolk will be able to remember what I said of it to him when he was last in France. As Cromwell's former allies on council fell over themselves furiously to distance themselves from their previous master there was but one voice who dared to speak in Cromwell's defence however diffidently. It was a man who'd learned how to pitch the message with Anne Boleyn's fall. It was Thomas Cranmer, so-called coward, according to his detractors. He wrote to the king of his amazement and grief that he should be a traitor who was so advanced by the king and cared for no man's displeasure to serve him and was so vigilant to detect treason that King John, Henry II and Richard II, had they had such a counsellor, would never have been so overthrown as they were. Cromwell added that he had loved Cromwell as a friend and the more for the love he seemed to bear the king. But that if Cromwell was indeed a traitor, then he was glad he had been discovered. Cranmer was a decent man, but he now stood alone, the last of the evangelical triumvirate of Berlin, Cromwell and Cranmer. There is a deal of mystery about Cromwell's fall, though primarily because of Henry's duplicity in raising him to be the Earl of Essex at the last moment. Take that away, and there are multiple reasons, really. 
Henry remained desperate to prove to the outside world that he was no heretic, to avoid the isolation of the previous year. The marriage to Anne was a disaster, he wanted out, and he realised that Cromwell had far too much personal capital invested in the marriage to be the one who could really get him out of it. He disliked all that chaos around the religious debate, and maybe losing Cromwell would quieten it by satisfying the Conservatives, and then getting rid of a man universally hated could surely do Henry's reputation nothing but good. It was a decision born and executed in expediency. Cromwell wrote a desperate letter of four pages in length, striving to convince Henry that he did not deserve his fate and that he was loyal. Henry knew that anyway, and therefore Cromwell's letter was so much wasted ink, and the loyal Ralph Sadler's bravery in delivering the letter to the king, sadly equally wasted, although I guess an act of bravery is never wasted. It must have felt good to Cromwell. Others of Cromwell's household incidentally also proved equally loyal, such as his nephew Richard Cromwell. Just as Cromwell had risked his career for his master Wolsey, so did Richard and Sadler for theirs. But Henry had no intention whatsoever of pulling back. He'd probably already forgotten he'd done it, though he did do some things, making sure Cromwell's servants were looked after, giving orders that Cromwell was not to be tortured, and in the end granting him a death by the axe rather than all that stuff about having a fry-up with your own genitals in front of your eyes. It wasn't much, but it's something, I suppose. As Cromwell composed his desperate letter in the Tower, a more innocent victim also now suffered the turn of fortune's wheel. On the 24th of June, 1540, Anne was ordered to remove herself to Richmond Palace. She read the signs and feared her fate would be the same as Catherine of Aragon's. On the 6th of July, a delegation visited Anne. It included Stephen Gardner and the Duke of Norfolk, and they told Anne that her husband intended to submit the validity of their marriage to a convocation of the English Church on the basis of non-consummation and a previous pre-contract on her part. Anne didn't read the document they handed to her. She may not have been able to anyway. She just agreed, saying that she is always content with your majesty's desire. On the 7th, Gardiner, no doubt revelling in his liberation from the power of Cromwell, put the case to convocation, and by the 9th, convocation had duly agreed that the marriage was a non-event. This meant that divorce proceedings could go ahead, and Anne was now asked to give formal assent in writing. Anne appears at this stage to have been wavering between rebellion and acceptance, and the latter basically won when she assented, but refused to write it down. What must have been going through her head? Anne seems to me to be totally different to all of Henry's other wives. She was in a foreign land with none of the resources and support that Catherine of Aragon had had. She had none of Catherine's learning. Her brother was just the Duke of Cleves. Catherine's was the most powerful man in the Western world, the Emperor. She spoke the language poorly. She comes across as just wanting to do the right thing in circumstances where the right thing was unknowable. And she might just have been a kind, unassuming person worried about letting her family and herself down. Clearly, one of the things that terrified her was that, as she herself said, her brother would slay her if she was sent back home. I suspect, though I absolutely cannot know and cannot prove it, that she felt in some way she'd actually let people down, that it was her fault that her marriage, which in a sense she had been told all her life would be her duty that she was born to, had failed. Henry, on the other hand, was probably rather nicely surprised. After all, Previous history with Catherine and Anne would suggest he'd be dragged through each of the seven circles of hell with added brass knobs at each one. So the metaphorical, oh, go on then, came as something of a shock. 
and made the separation considerably more civilised. She was given Richmond and Bletchingley to live in, along with £4,000 a year and precedence over most people at court. Later, Henry would also give her Hever Castle, which she would make her home. But when her consent to the divorce was required, her pain showed. She protested that she knew nothing other than that she had been granted the king as her husband and thus she took him to be her true lord and husband. The ambassador with her related that she made such tears and bitter cries it would break a heart of stone. It would be nice, I think, to tell a story about Anne of the one that didn't care, the lucky one, the one that got away. And indeed, this is the very approach told by Karen Lindsay in her book Divorced, Beheaded, Survived, a feminist reinterpretation of the wives of Henry VIII, where she described the situation as a narcissistic buffoon foiled by a woman with common sense. And indeed, Anne settled down to make England her home, quite probably partly because she did not want to face the humiliation of returning home, rejected. However much, it was nothing of her doing. She set up home in Hever, and on various occasions, she and Henry got together, and they seemed to rub along pretty well, almost like good friends. In her essential goodness, Anne accepted her successor, Catherine Howard, and even exchanged gifts with her. But the evidence suggests that the truth was that she deeply regretted the separation from Henry, that she felt her destiny and the destiny of her family had been cheated, lost. When Catherine was executed, she tried to get Henry to remarry her. In 1542, when Henry failed to communicate with her, she became very depressed. Henry met and dined with her when he decided to marry Catherine Parr to reconcile her to the new match. Later in life, when Henry was gone and the water had travelled under the bridge, she began to dream of returning home, but it was not to be. She died in 1557 at the age of 42 in Chelsea and was buried at Westminster Abbey. Henry had dragged Cromwell into the whole affair, demanding that Cromwell verify Henry's version of events for the divorce. Once Cromwell had dutifully complied from the Tower, he was toast. His execution was scheduled for the 28th of July on Tower Hill, in public, therefore, rather than in the privacy of Tower Green. One chronicle has it that Edward Seymour visited to goad him the day before, but whether it's true or not, Cromwell seems by this stage to have come through denial and panic to acceptance and dignity. On the day itself, Tower Hill was unsurprisingly stuffed. You can imagine it. Families there for a good day out, lots of chat, picnics probably. The scaffold was surrounded by guardsmen to protect against any disturbance, but there was none. Cromwell was in control of himself and his bodily functions. He even called out to members of the crowd and comforted his nervous fellow prisoner, Walter Lord Hungerford, who was less in control. Tradition has it that Cromwell addressed his weeping protégé, Thomas Wyatt, in the crowd, but it seems a bit unlikely. The record of his last speech has it that he went through all the traditional acceptance of guilt and asked Henry to look well on his son, which was, after all, the point of pretending to accept all the blame. But there were just little snippets of rebellion, small, subtle, hidden. And it is not unknown to many of you that I have been a great traveller in this world and being but of a base degree was called to high estate. Cromwell here tells everyone in code that this was his real crime, his background, and he seeks sympathy and fellowship from his audience as they eat their pies and swallow their ale. He also said, I die in the Catholic faith, not doubting in any article of my faith, no, nor doubting in any sacrament of the church. 
Here is Cromwell directly refuting the accusations made that he was a heretic and a sacramentalist. There is no implication he was refuting the reforms he brought to the church. Both he and Henry firmly believed in the Catholic Church, but they believed in the Catholic Church, not the Roman Catholic Church, and they believed that their reformed church was the Catholic Church, with the barnacles and limpets of the generations careened away. While he was speaking, the crowd would have been distracted by Hungerford, whose hold on sanity was a little loose, and who kept interrupting, screaming at the executioner to put him out of his misery. Eventually Cromwell laid his head on the block, and his executioner got to work. It took him some time, at least three blows, the worst story has it at thirty minutes. But eventually Cromwell's head was held up to the crowd. He died unregretted by most, and his death celebrated by the Catholic powers, a few did realise what England had lost. Thomas Wyatt, who wrote a poem, of course. Thomas Wyatt, I suspect, could hardly stub a toe without writing a sonnet about how stubby and toe-like it had all been. I have put said poem on the website. No, come on, let's do it. You know what they say, a sonnet a day keeps the doctor away. After all, doctors are required to save lives, but listening to sonnets is clearly above and beyond. Here we go then. Thomas Wyatt on Cromwell's death. The pillar perished is whereto I lent, the strongest stay of mine unquiet mind. The like of it, no man again can find from east to west still seeking though he went. To mine unhap, for hap away hath rent, of all my join the very bark and rind. And I, alas, by chance am thus assigned, dearly to mourn till death do it relent. But since that thus it is by destiny, what can I more but have a woeful heart, my pen in plaint, my voice in woeful cry, my mind in woe, my body full of smart, and I myself, myself, always to hate, till dreadful death do ease my doleful state. A little whiny, perhaps, but you know. Ralph Sadler, Richard Cromwell, also wore their hearts on their sleeves at the event, but there's no denying that most hung out the bunting and cracked a cold one in celebration. Well, warm one, since we're talking about proper beer here, you don't have to chill to death to hide the lack of taste. Among the crowd was another poet, Henry Howard, Earl of Surrey. For him, this was nothing but satisfaction. Now is the false churl dead, so ambitious of others' blood. Now he is stricken with his own staff. Now then, on the members' shedcast, we had a full and frank debate recently about Thomas and what we thought of him. I regaled everyone with a series of quotes about Cromwell over the years. Here are a few. A couple of contemporaries first. Reginald Pole gives a typically balanced view. An agent of Satan sent by the devil to law King Henry to damnation. Fair enough. So let's hear from Thomas Cranmer. Such a servant in my judgment in wisdom, diligence, faithfulness and experience as no prince in this realm ever had. Slightly different viewpoint then. Let's go to a more recent evaluation. Here's Robert Hutchinson. An ambitious and totally corrupt statesman and opportunistic Jack the Lad, a ruffian on the make. I could go on and on. Cromwell's reputation has been up and down like nothing else. But let me do a couple more. Here's Mark Davis, Catholic Bishop of Shrewsbury. It would be sad if Thomas Cromwell, who is surely one of the most unscrupulous figures in English history, was to be held up as a role model for future generations. But I come to praise Cromwell, not to bury him, and without wanting to consign myself too firmly to fandom, 
I go with J.J. Scarisbrick, who has the advantage of still being Henry VIII's most respected biographer, which after 50 years has got to be some sort of record. Far from being the ruthless Machiavellian of legend, Cromwell was a man possessed of a high concept of the state and national sovereignty and a deep concern for parliament and the law. An administrative genius, one who may have lacked profound religious sense, though instinctively favourable to some kind of Erasmian Protestantism, but something of an idealist nonetheless. That the 1530s were a decisive decade in English history was due largely to his energy and vision. We had a bit of fun for the History of England members, a bit of a debate, quiz, coin giveaway and all that. And sadly, the voting members of the History of England inclined actually to a rather more critical interpretation of Cromwell, and I should, of course, bow to their superior judgment. And I admit that Cromwell was a cold, logical, pragmatic man who did some vicious and brutal things in condemning some innocent people to death, like Anne Boleyn and probably Exeter. We had the discussion here about the number of people executed for treason, 308 against a total indicted of 883, of whom 287 were in open rebellion against the crown anyway. While this tells a story that the body count was nothing like that often claimed in the more hysterical records, Cromwell and Henry without doubt created an atmosphere of terror in England during the later 1530s. But this is what Renaissance politics was like. When Mountjoy's father warned against getting involved with princes, he did so before Henry VIII's reign. It's reasonable to say that courtiers Cromwell had executed would have done the same to him, because, hmm, they did. It is, of course, a very different case for those caught in the religious turmoil. Sadly, in Reformation Europe, they are hardly exceptional. For me, Cromwell was a man of his time, who acted to both faithfully deliver his duty by his master, and where he had leeway, to deliver his own vision. And in both cases, he did so with verve, courage, foresight. And whether you love him or loathe him, surely we can all agree he was an utterly exceptional man and a genuine rags-to-riches story. Anyway, that's it for now then. Cromwell is gone, toast, dismissed. Wyatt and I will cry on each other's shoulders in private for a while, not to worry. There'll be another one along in another hundred years' time who should also give us something to talk about. For us, though, next up are two episodes about the Queen who supplanted Anne, Queen Catherine Howard. By that time, hopefully Wyatt and I will have stopped sniffling. Until then... Good luck, everyone, and have a great week. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.